in town recently on purpose over coffee and just talking about the church in Ellsworth and how we can more effectively reach our community and, and at the same time serve our church bodies. And I think this is an exciting time um, and God is doing something in this community and I want to be a part of it and um, I think you do too. Um, before I get started, let's watch this video. What is church? Is it a building? With some pews? A piano? And stained glass? Or is it something more? 2,000 years ago, the church was born. It wasn't made up of the famous, the rich, or the powerful. It was made up of everyday people who passionately believed in the message of Jesus. It was the beginning of a revolution of love and freedom that would change the world forever. In 369 AD, the church built the first hospital as a place to care for those who cannot care for themselves. Today, the church is the largest single provider of healthcare in history. The church was the first to stand up for the rights of children, creating the first and largest orphanage system in the world. 100 out of the first 110 universities in America were founded as Christian institutions. Places like Harvard, Dartmouth, Yale, and Princeton. Much of the world's greatest art, architecture, literature, and music has been shaped by the church. But the impact of the church isn't just ancient history. Today, the church is stronger than ever and continues to impact every corner of the world. Over 300,000 churches in America and almost 5 million churches around the world stand ready to be instruments of change, to do what governments could never do. Every day, the church brings food and fresh water to millions of people across the world. It has a renewed passion to help widows and orphans and fights to free slaves in every part of the world. It stands ready as a first responder on the scene to provide relief for victims of disaster. The ripple of Jesus' impact can be clearly seen and felt in the church today. And it's made up of people like me and you. Today, you didn't just come to a building. You came to a revolution 2,000 years in the making. The world is facing as much trouble as ever. But we are not afraid. We were created for such a time as this. We will continue to do what we've always done. Proclaim the message of Jesus. To help a world that needs him so desperately. Welcome. 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 Welcome to church. So I don't, it's, I don't know what comes to your mind or what you feel when you hear the word church, when you think about church. My hunch is that it's a far cry from what people in the first century thought of when they thought of that initial gathering. Because in the first century, from the very beginning, the church has been a movement. It didn't begin as an institution. It didn't begin with liturgy. It didn't begin with any tradition. There weren't any Bibles. There weren't any banners. There weren't any bands. There weren't any other things that started with the letter B. There weren't any buildings there weren't, or facilities. There was no staff. There was no hierarchy. From the very, very beginning, the church began as a movement. It began as a movement about, around a very simple idea that, unfortunately, we tend to talk about a couple times a year, maybe, definitely once a year, maybe another time and a few times in our music. The church launched itself around an event in history. And when we talk about it, we call it the resurrection of Jesus. It was the resurrection of Jesus that galvanized these first century believers around this simple idea that Jesus was, in fact, who he claimed to be. And it was this simple event. It was a testimony but the testimony of eyewitnesses to that event that basically launched the local church. But from the very beginning, it began as a movement. So today, as we begin this series, we're going to spend a few weeks just talking about this. I'm going to call this mega church. all right? Um, and I know you just had a, a vision in your a mental picture in your head of that. But I want you to understand that we're all part 
of the mega church. It is, it's way beyond what we can even comprehend. So I want to give a little bit of background this morning about the whole idea of church. We're going to look at a Greek word together, and you know I'm a Greek scholar, and, uh, or I like to read people who, who do that work for me, actually. And those of you who don't think I'm deep, we're going, we're going to go deep this morning. Uh, we're even going to, we're going to see the Greek word, so this is our deep day, okay? So you're like, no, they're just not deep. Well, once every few years we go deep, so little history lesson today. This is really, really important. Because if you grew up Catholic, or you grew up Protestant, or you didn't grow up in church at all, hopefully today kind of fills in some gaps in your thinking about what you think about when you hear the word church. But uh, my goal today, I guess as I inform you a little bit, I don't know, maybe some things that you didn't know before, but my goal is for us to begin to rethink church, to rethink, retool our thinking about church, maybe even redefine in our hearts and even at an emotional level what the church is all about. Because at the end of the day, the church launched as a movement, and regardless of whether you're a part of it or not, the church is actually still moving. Here's a fascinating sort of academic part of this, and I find academic things fascinating at times. In the Greek New Testament, the little word that's translated church, if you were to read your Bible and read the New Testament, whenever you run across the word church, it's a translation of a Greek word. And we're going to put the word up here for you. It's the word ekklesia. Ekklesia. Let's all say that together because it's kind of a cool word to say. Ecclesia. You are Greek wizards. Ecclesia. Literally, the little Greek word ecclesia means an assembly or a gathering. That's just what it means, an assembly or a gathering or a congregation. And it doesn't have any kind of religious connotation at all. An assembly, a gathering, congregation of people. And throughout the Greek New Testament, when you see the, this word ecclesia, and it literally means, you know, you can, you can look it up, you can Google it right now if you want to. It simply means a gathering or an assembly. And when Jesus launched the church, he launched it, as we're going to see in a few minutes in, from Matthew, he launched it as a gathering around one simple idea with, with, with a really simple mission, with a very simple singular focus. It was a gathering and it was a congregation. But then something terrible happened in history. Something terrible happened. As time went by, there was a transition from the idea of a movement to a location, from a gathering around an idea, around an event, to a hierarchy, from a dynamic around a simple message and a simple event in history, the resurrection, things began to transition to something entirely different. And if you know history at all, and you have any interest in that, or if you ever read anything about church history at all, or the medieval period, or anything like that, you know that the church went through a terrible, terrible, embarrassing, really super embarrassing time where everything was wrong with the local church. And that horrible, destructive period of history was launched, is what launched in some way, shape, and form, this misunderstanding of the term church. Because the little Greek word couldn't be any clearer. Ecclesia was transitioned then into a different word. And I want to show you this word, and we're going to put it up there. It's actually a German word, and I can't pronounce it in German, but I won't even try to do that. But the English kind of derivative of this is the word kirch. Mm. And it's from this German word that actually, it actually came from the Goths around 300 AD. It's where our English word for church came from, and it literally meant in 300 AD, the Lord's house. We tend to think of that as, uh, as a capital L. Um, they, didn't even, they didn't even think of it that way. They just thought uh, it's, I'm not going to bore you with all the history, but essentially over time, pretty quickly, about from, the time, I mean, from the time of Christ, within, th- within 300 years, the idea of a gathering or a movement, an assembly, a congregation, transitioned 
to this idea from where we get the word church. So throughout your English New Testament, the little word ecclesia, that Greek word, which means gathering, movement, congregation, is translated church. And you can see there's no relationship at all between the idea of a congregation and a movement and the Lord's house. There's a disconnect. In fact, this was a throwback to the Old Testament idea of the temple. Because in ancient Israel, there was a temple, and the people of God gathered in the temple, and they believed God lived in the temple. In a sense, he did, but he wasn't limited to the temple. And this horrible, horrible uh, linguistic transition resulted in some terrible, terrible theology. And that's why I think words are important. Because words eventually affect what we actually believe. And before long, the church was located in a building. And whoever controlled the building controlled the church. And whoever controlled the building controlled the scripture. And whoever controlled the building controlled the scripture controlled the people. And in some segments of Europe, as you know, whoever controlled the building and controlled the scriptures and controlled the people controlled the government. And over time, what began as a movement of distributing the truth of Jesus throughout the world became a very insider-focused, hierarchical, ritual, in some cases even pagan-influenced, immoral, destructive, unethical movement that had absolutely no reflection at all of what happened first in the first century when the first church was launched. What came as a result of this Linguistic change, we just thought it was language, or this shifting from ecclesia, which is gathering movement congregation, to the idea of a location, resulted in some things that are absolutely embarrassing when we talk about church history. It's part of the reason why some people continue to turn their back on organized religion. In fact, that same idea that began around 300 AD is still reflected in thinking today about the local church and the church in general. But then something awesome happened. In the 16th century, so the, mid, the early 1500s, a guy showed up in England who was a scholar. His name was William Tyndale. Ever heard of William Tyndale? Uh, we have a really attractive picture of William Tyndale. And uh, he, he don't laugh. He can't help what, you know, what he looks like. Um, is he smiling? No, I didn't think so. William Tyndale was an, uh, an English author and scholar. He was a linguistic scholar, specifically. And he decided, it's crazy, he decided that it was time for the average person to have access to the Bible in their own language because in that day and age, in the 16th century, people had to go to church, listen to a priest, read from a translation of the Scripture that, they, that the average person couldn't even understand. No one had access to the Scripture. Think about that. And if you control the Bible, you control the truth. And if you control the truth, you control the church and you control the people. And William Tyndale decided enough of this. The people, the English people specifically, they need to have access to the truth of God's word. And he began to translate. He was the first person to do this. He went, to, he went back to translate from the original Hebrew and Greek text into English. And the church uh, leaders weren't very happy about this because this went to the very essence of their power. And he became an outlaw in their eyes. And he had to leave England and flee for his life. And he fled to Germany where he continued to do his translation work. Interesting, he ended up in Germany, because thanks to Gutenberg, who lived 100 years before William Tyndale, now he began to print his copies of the New Testament, and he smuggled them into, into uh, England. And all of a sudden, the average person had a copy, not a handwritten copy of Scripture, which are so extremely expensive, no one could afford those, but suddenly the English people, they had the entire New Testament, in some cases the entire Bible, in their hands in a language they could understand. 
Well, Tyndale was eventually betrayed by a friend, brought back to England, tried for being a heretic. They hung him, and then they burned his body just to, you know, to, and then they discarded him as a heretic and enemy of the church. <clears throat> and they thought they dealt with that, but it was way too late because now the word was out. English-speaking people had a copy of the scripture, and the church, the institutional church, the church that thought in terms of location and control of people began to lose its power because the average person actually had a, could hold a copy of the scripture in their hands. During his trial, um, he made this statement, and this is one of his most famous quotes. He said, if God spare my life many years, I'll cause a boy that drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. And he said this to the religious leaders of his day. He accused them of manipulating the scriptures and manipulating the people and manipulating the church in order to control the people and to control political policy. And he said, if it's left up to me, I'm going to make sure everybody holds in their hands and is able to read the holy scriptures. One of the things that drove the people of his day absolutely crazy is that William Tyndale was translating, as he was translating the scriptures, when he got to this little Greek word, ecclesia, he didn't translate it church. In his copy of the New Testament, he got to the word, in, in, in meaning, you know, the German meaning, the Lord's house. In his copy of the New Testament, he got the word ecclesia and he put in the word congregation, because that's what the word means. It was his attempt to return the New Testament and return the gathering of God's people back to what it was meant to be, what it started out off as in the first century, a growing multicultural, multi-ethnic, mission-centered movement of people with a very simple message for everyone in the whole world around one single event in history, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and William Tyndale was exactly right that the church was actually a gathering, a growing group of people. It's exactly what Jesus said. In the book of Matthew, there's an incident where Jesus gathers his disciples together and they're just, you know, doing life. And he asks them this question that you should, probably shouldn't ask your friends because you may, not, you may get information you're not crazy about. But he gathered his group of uh, followers together and he said, what's the word on the street about me? Who do people say that I am? When people talk about me and they talk Jesus, you know, who do people, what do people say? And so his disciples said, well, some people think you're a reincarnated John the Baptist, which I think is weird. And someone else says, yeah, yeah, well, some people think you're, uh, you're definitely a reincarnated version of some Old Testament prophet, which I think is weird. But Peter says, he says I tell you, I'll tell you who I think you are. I think you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says this, check this out. And this is Matthew uh, chapter 16. And I'm going to move so quickly through the scripture today that you probably won't have time uh, to look it up, but it's going to be on the screen. Matthew 16, verse 17, Jesus replied to Peter. He said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this, this statement that you've made, that I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God, I'm the Messiah, this statement was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you're Peter, and on this rock, which is what Peter means, I'll build my, and here's our word, I'll build my ecclesia. I'll build my, not church building, not gathering place. I'll build my ecclesia. I'll build my gathering. I'll build my congregation. I'll build my assembly. I'll build my movement. I'll build my church and the gates of death, or your translation might say, gates of hell or the gates of Hades, the gates of death will not overcome it. In other words, no matter what happens, no matter how bleak the future looks, no matter how many people die for this cause, no matter who dies, this will continue on forever and ever and ever because the church was birthed as a movement of people around a simple message and around a simple idea. It was not about a building. It was not about any of the things that it would quickly become about in just a few hundred years. It would be a movement. Not too long after this conversation, Jesus was crucified, and then he rose from the dead. And he spent about 40 days with his followers, and after about 40 days, he gathered them on a hillside, and he gave them his final instructions. 
In Matthew, we call it the Great Commission. Some of us call it the Great Everyday Commission. But in the book of Acts, there's a version of it where Jesus gives them the final instructions and he predicts, this is so cool, he predicts the beginning of the church. He's already said that on this idea that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, on this premise, I'm going to launch a movement. He's already said that. I'm going to launch a multiplying gathering of people. But just before he leaves the planet, he gathers with his 11 disciples. There's a few others there. Mary was there. His brothers were there. Probably his sisters were there. About 100 other people. And he gathers them on a hillside. And here's what he tells them. And this is in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So he gathered them together. And they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Because they weren't thinking in terms of a growing, gathering, multiplying, multi-ethnic, multicultural thing that we would call the church. They were thinking that Jesus is now going to establish his kingdom. Verse 7. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Now, and I don't know what they thought, uh, but surely they thought power. That's a good thing. That's what we need in this situation. We need some power. And it sounds like we're going to get some kind of special power, but what are we supposed to do with this special power? And he says this, and you will be, as a result of this new power, you'll be my witnesses. Little Greek word that basically means the same thing that we think about when we think of a witness in a court. You know, somebody who will testify to something, somebody who will accurately represent an event, somebody who will accurately represent uh, what a person did or what a person said or what they've experienced. He says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where they were, in Judea, which was kind of the broader area, and Samaria, which is an area they didn't even really want to go into. And then he says, to the ends of the earth. And I don't know what they thought, but we can just try to imagine for a minute, you're standing with a man who Rome crucified, the religious leaders hated. He's come back to life. There's a hundred, about a hundred of you gathered, and he says, here's what's going to happen. You're going to take the message of me, and you're going to take my teaching, and you're going to take the fact that you were eyewitnesses to the resurrection, and you're going to take this message all over Jerusalem. And they're like looking at each other like, okay, Jerusalem, we can do Jerusalem, cool. And Judea, and they're like, Okay. In Samaria, what? Oh, we don't really like those people. We don't even like to travel through there. We'll go around that. Oh, and the rest of the world. And no doubt they looked at each other and they're like, the rest of the world? Jesus, time out. I mean, Jesus, do you know how big the world is? And I think he's thinking, you have no idea how big the world is. You have no idea. You know, all you know is the Roman world. But this message, this movement, this gathering, this momentum that we're creating is going to touch every single part of the world, which is exactly what's happened. This is one of the most significant prophecies in the Bible because we are, in some way, fulfillment. And then Jesus left. And this little group of 100 to 120 people went back into the city of Jerusalem and they began to pray together and they met together and they prayed together and about two weeks later, something amazing happened. Two weeks later was a Jewish celebration of Pentecost. Pentecost is a celebration or a festival where Jewish people and converts to Judaism gathered in the city of Jerusalem, a little bit kind of like Passover. Everybody came to Jerusalem to celebrate this Jewish festival. And we found out later in the book of Acts that there were Jewish people and converts to Judaism from all over, from about a dozen different regions of the known world. People basically from all over, all over had come to gather in Jerusalem, and now it's full of people. We think we got it bad on High Street in July, you know, but the, Jerusalem was full of people from different parts of the world who came together to celebrate this Jewish holiday. The Scripture tells us that while they were meeting, while this 100, 120 people were meeting, Mary was there, Jesus' brothers are there, the apostles are there praying together, and suddenly on the day of Pentecost, 
the Holy Spirit shows up in their midst in a powerful, powerful way, just as Jesus had predicted. And the manifestation or the overflowing of the Holy Spirit manifesting himself in such a way that, that these individual followers of Jesus suddenly were able to speak the languages of all these people who had gathered in Jerusalem on that particular day for this particular festival. That's pretty cool stuff. I don't know if you've ever had to speak through an interpreter. I've done it a few times. We did it years ago. We were on a mission trip in Chile, and I, I preached, I think, four or five times through an interpreter. Gift of tongues would have been really cool right about then, you know? They went into the city and they began to talk to these people from all over the world in their language. And the people from all over the world who had come to celebrate this feast looked at these Galileans, according to the book of Acts, and Luke investigated all this, and he put all this together for us. He was super thorough. And they said, how is it that you can speak my language? You're a Galilean. Then they recognized another Galilean was speaking to somebody else from a different region of the world in their language. They thought, man, they must have had a sail on Rosetta Stone or something. How are these people pulling this off? And they're, all of a sudden, in the city square, in the middle of Jerusalem, there's all this energy and there's all this turmoil and there's all this excitement, all this conversation. Because how is it that these Galileans, these look like pretty average people. They're not like super educated people. Some of them smell like fishermen. How, can, how are they able to go speak our language? What is this strange and mysterious thing that they're even talking about? That there is this Jesus and they're calling him the Messiah, the promise, that he's come. I mean, that was the center of, of the Jewish faith. The Messiah has come and he was crucified and he's been raised from the dead. What are they talking about? And suddenly there's a stir in Jerusalem and the significance of it was not that it was in our language and not that it was for our particular people. It was multinational. It was multi-ethnic. It was multicultural. And it was just as Jesus had predicted can you imagine the picture? So as Jesus, or as things kind of just ramp up and as people begin to gather and talk and wonder what's going on, some people thought they were drunk. And others are going, well, I, I, I like some of that because if they're drunk, they're actually speaking my language, you know? He's not, they're not just babbling. She's not just babbling. And Peter decided it was time for the very first sermon in the church because this was the day the church was born. I don't know where he got the idea of a sermon. He thought, I know what I'm going to do. And Jesus predicted this. He described that it was going to be a gathering. It was going to be an ecclesia. Now they're all gathered together, and Peter stands up in some steps or somewhere where people could see him, and he begins to preach the very first sermon on the very first day. This is opening day of the church. Of the church. And he draws back to an Old Testament context that many of these Jewish listeners would understand. And he says, these things that are happening amongst you were predicted in the Old Testament. And he quotes some Old Testament scripture so to say that basically you shouldn't be surprised. You know this. God predicted that one day the message that had been given to the Jews would be expanded and would be a message to the entire world. And he launches into this part of the sermon, and here's what he said in Acts chapter 2. This is verse 22. He says, fellow Israelites, this is Peter speaking, he's speaking to all these people who are just mystified by the, by the fact that all these Galileans know their language. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. <clears throat> Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by, by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you. Because many of these people have been in Jerusalem, okay? Miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And that's another sermon. And you, will, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So Peter's basically recalling some very, very recent history. How many of you remember Labor Day 2014? Okay, just think about it. Can you remember what you did on Labor Day 2014? Some of you went to the fair? That was two months ago. Okay, 
They're talking about what happened two months ago. It's not, it's not ancient history. This is fresh in their minds. And especially an event like this, whoo, baby, it's only two months from the resurrection. It's only two months after the crucifixion and the resurrection. And so he says, Jesus of Nazareth, many people in the audience are like, oh, yeah, I was there for that. Man, that was a crazy day. I saw him drag his cross through the streets. I thought they were going to kill him right there. I know some of his followers, and I'm not sure what they were thinking, but they were following this guy everywhere. I was on the outskirts of a crowd there for one of those sermons. Oh, he healed a friend of mine, you know. I, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. This isn't just history. This is recent history. He says, you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Not a great way to start a sermon, by the way. But God... <clears throat> For a couple thousand years, preachers have been building their sermons on this model. Here's the problem. But God. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So he basically just preaches the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Verse 20, uh, verse, all the way down to verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are witnesses of the fact. We're not simply giving a testimony for what Jesus taught which was, some of it was pretty cool, but we're not simply repeating his teachings. So if you're, if you're new to Christianity, or maybe you're not a Christian, or you're trying to figure this out, this whole thing, this is so important to understanding Christianity, that these first century believers were not simply teaching what Jesus taught. Christianity isn't about embracing a teaching. Christianity from the very outset was about embracing embracing an event in history. They said, we are witnesses of the fact that he was crucified. A lot of people saw that. We are witnesses of the fact that he came back to life. A lot of people saw that. Not years ago, but about two months ago, we're witnesses of these things. So he goes on, verse 33. He's exalted to the right hand of God. He was received from the Father, with the, uh, he received from the, Father uh, the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. In other words, this whole thing that's happening in Jerusalem right now on this chaotic weekend is from God. Verse 36, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, that God made this Jesus whom you crucified. God made this Jesus. Now he's pointing his finger at the Jews in Jerusalem. God made this Jesus whom you crucified. Some of you were there. Some of you accused him. Some of you walked away and didn't defend him. God's made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And a hush fell over the crowd in Jerusalem. Finally, someone cries out, verse 37, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? We remember. Yeah, 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 yeah. We were there. I mean, it was only a couple months ago. We remember this. How can we forget? We're still talking about it. I mean, what do we do now? It's too late. What should we do? And Peter, Peter replied, Attend church regularly. It's opening day of the church. You want people to come, you know. We'll even save you a seat. We'll mark it. It's your seat. Leave your Bible there all week long. It's your seat. That dynamic, that excitement, that sense of wonder and awe, it's opening day of the church, all right? And for many of us, when you think church, you don't, don't you, don't you think attend church? I haven't been to church in a while. I need to get back in church. I need to get my family in church. I'm just telling you, an opening day of the church, those words would not have made any sense because the church was a gathering of people. It was a multiplying gathering around a simple message, a simple, a simple event that happened. There was momentum. There was a dynamic. There was energy. There was a message that was to spread throughout the entire world. Here's what Peter actually said, verse 38. Peter replied, repent 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And here's the promise. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off. Do you know who the all who are far off are? It's you and me. It's Peter's way, this, this, it's all who are far off. It's Peter's way of saying this isn't just a Jerusalem thing. This isn't just a this generation thing. This isn't just an us thing. This thing that has begun in our midst, this message, this momentum, this idea, all the supernatural power that we're experiencing today, this whole thing is, oh, it's for us. It's for our children, for our descendants, and it's for all who are far off. All who are far off geographically, all who are far away chronologically, that's us. This is something that can reach beyond our lifetime because remember, he says, Jesus said the gates of hell or the gates of death, will, th- this generation will die, but the momentum will continue to be there. This generation will die, but the church will continue to thrive. This is a multi-generational message. This is an event that will touch people who are far off, people who haven't been born yet in places that we don't even know exist yet. He says, all those who are far off for all whom the Lord our God will call. And when they had their first altar call, some of you grew up in churches. How many of you spent any time in churches that had an altar call? When I, when I describe it, it sounds so weird. But uh, some of us grew up in churches where they had altar calls, and you'd sing a hymn. Um, and then you'd, yeah, just as I am, and you'd sing first, third, and fifth verse, and then you'd sing the fifth verse again, and then again. And then again, while you're singing, people would respond to whatever the teaching was and come and they'd kneel and they'd pray or they'd pray with somebody or, you know, whatever. And that's fine. They had an altar call, but they didn't sing a hymn. They didn't have to. They didn't have time. <laughs> they didn't have time to cue the band because there was just so much energy and so much passion and so much conviction. There have been so many miracles of people, uh, as people have been, you know, speaking these languages. I mean, here's how the crowd responded in verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized. <clears throat> About 3,000 were added to their number that day. Think about the last time you were in a crowd of 3,000 people. 3,000 people in Jerusalem who'd heard of or witnessed the life and the works of Jesus. 3,000 people, don't miss this, who could have said, you know, time out. I'd like for the crowd to follow me, Peter. I can show you where his tomb is. I can show you where Jesus is buried. This wasn't years ago. This is a couple months ago. So time out. I can take you to the place where his body is. In the very city where Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead, about 3,000 people said, we believe. 3,000 people joined the church on, on day one and were baptized. You ever thought about how long it would take to baptize 3,000 people? I mean, for days and days and days, the apostles were in the Jordan River and probably every body of water they could find baptizing people. Can you imagine the stir? Because this wasn't a huge city. In those days, ancient cities weren't huge in population. 3,000 people suddenly converting to Christianity? From the very beginning, the church has been big. And from the very beginning, big things have happened. There's big momentum. It's a big message. It's a big event. And I know that some people don't like big churches or big crowds or any of, that, of any kind, really, for that matter. And I, I guess I can understand that. But you would not have enjoyed opening day of the church in Jerusalem, but I would love to have been there. You may not enjoy heaven for that matter, but that's for you to figure out. That's probably a different subject. Maybe, maybe we'll all be divided into small groups according to our specific beliefs, which would be great for some people. They'd love that. Um, but they'd have no one to argue with, so I don't know what they do all day. But the point... Maybe there'll be Facebook in heaven. We can argue there. 
Whoa, stop. Back to my notes. The point is, on opening day of the local church, it was big, it was dynamic, it was powerful, and thousands of people embraced this message. Thousands of people said, we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he was crucified by Rome with our help. And he rose from the dead, and we believe, Peter, and your friends, that you are eyewitnesses of this, and we repent of our sins, and we want to be baptized and included in this brand new gathering, this brand new congregation that would eventually become known as the church, the local church, just like Jesus said, just like he predicted. And 2,000 years later, here we are. Do you know there's something that unites Protestants and Catholics and people from every culture in between and every culture around the world who name the name of Jesus. Do you know what the common denominator is? It's not the way we worship, is it? It's not the way we think in terms of liturgy. It's not our customs or our traditions. It's not the way we baptize or the way we do communion. We don't even agree on that all the time in this church. The only thing that galvanizes, the only point of common ground, the only thing that we have in common, if you take every single believer from every single culture all over the world, all down through history, there's one thing that we have in common. It's that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that he rose from the dead and that his death paid for the sins of the entire world. That's like four things. But just as Jesus had predicted, and it wasn't about a location, there was no location. The church wasn't for church people. We'll talk more about that. Because there weren't any church people. It wasn't about tradition or style or a way of doing anything. There was none of that. But there was energy. There was dynamic. There was momentum. There was a movement. And the world would never, ever, ever be the same again. Here's what's so cool. Since opening day, since day one, there's always been a group of people who understand that this is a movement that must move. This is a dynamic that must spread. This is a message that must touch down in every single region of our world, in every single culture of the world, in every single language of the world. And since day one, there have been apostles and missionaries and Jesuits, and there have been Bible translators, and there have been evangelists, and there have been Bible smugglers, and there have been preachers, and there have been people who serve, and people who took care of the poor in Jesus' name. And for every generation, there's always this group who understand that church is not a location. Church is not a hierarchy. Who've understood I'll not be controlled. The scripture is for all people. There have always been people like William Tyndale who said, I'm willing to give my life in order to put the scripture, the story of Jesus, the story of the church into the hands of common people so they can read it and say, wow, look what God's done. I want to be part of that. There's always been people like that. And I was struck by that, by the news this morning. Today, in this globe that we live on, it's happening today. There have all been people, always been people who are willing to put their life on the line for the sake of the truth. There's always been a group that say, we're not going back to the Old Testament where I have to approach God through another person. There's always been a group of people who understood from the New Testament that you are the temple of God. That when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was available to every single human being who would embrace the message of Jesus, that that you are the temple of God, that God dwells in you. And when we gather in Jesus' name, we are part of a thing that we call the church that has momentum left over. And the momentum that was initially uh, 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 fueled on that opening day in the city of Jerusalem. There have always been people who got that. And one of the things I love about our church is that you get this. This is why when someone is baptized, you cheer. You just do it. We've never said, okay, now here's what we're going to do. When the candidate comes out of the water, we shall be cheering together on our count. You know, there's no applause sign. You get crazy about baptisms. 
This is why when you meet in groups or you, under, you understand, when you meet in a group, you are the church. When you meet over coffee, coffee with other believers, you are the church. When you, whether you ever step foot inside this building again, when you gather in a, in a circle, in a home, your gathering is, a, is the church. When we gather to serve the poor, when we gather to serve our community, when we gather to serve as the church, we, we gather as the church. When you gather together to go on a mission trip, you're moving together as the church. Every time you serve in our children's ministries or youth ministry or in the parking lot or at the coffee bar or on the cleaning team or whatever, you serve as the church. There's always been and there will always be a group of people who understand it's not location, it's not style, it's not approach. It's about gathering around this one simple idea that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He died on the cross. He rose. And that this is a message for the entire, the entire, the entire world. So, I don't know what comes to your mind when you, or what you feel when you hear the word church. But I hope as a result of our time together today and the, the next few weeks, that maybe that feeling can be a little bit different, maybe a little more accurate. I hope as a result of today that we never ever allow ourselves to slide it back into thinking that it's a place, that it's a location, that, but that for the rest of our lives, and that, for the, that we'll understand that the church is a movement. The church is a movement worldwide with extraordinary momentum. And I hope for the rest of our lives together as a local church, as a local gathering, that we'll be on task, that we'll be on mission, with what happened that very first day, on opening day, when the church started. And it started big. Next time, we're going to pick up kind of where we left off in, the, in Acts. So we got through, basically through Acts chapter 2, and here's what I would love for you to do. I'd love for you to go home, and at some point during the next couple of weeks, because most of you have an English Bible, thanks to William Tyndale, and start reading the rest of the story. Um, it just blows my mind when I think about this guy, this American that was released today, he'd been held in prison, basically, because he left the Bible in his hotel room. And I think of, uh, how many Bible apps do you have on your phone? <laughs> how many extra Bibles do we have sitting in our, on our shelf? And some of them, I've got some still in cellophane, you know? Uh, so anyway, I just encourage you to go read the book of Acts. I just encourage you to, over the next couple weeks, we've said Pastor Buckingham is going to be here next week. So you got a couple of weeks to read the first five or six chapters of the book of Acts. Um, if you like a good action thriller, you read the first few chapters. I read the entire book of Acts, for that matter. Understand this. If you have any connection to church at all, when you read the book of Acts, this is your story. It's your story. These are the people who made it possible to do what we're doing today and what we envision that God would have us do in the future. And thanks to people in history like William Tyndale and Martin Luther and others like them, you can read your Bible in your own language. You don't have to wait for me to read it to you. In fact, I would recommend that you read it on your own. There's always been a group of people who understand Ecclesia the gathering, momentum, movement of the local church around one simple idea, around one incredible event that changed the world and will continue to change the world. So my prayer for us is that we will always be an ecclesia, a gathering that's right in the center of what God is doing through the local church in our community and in our world. I, uh, I've recently been turned on to this band's music. 
And uh, it seems like every song I hear I love for a different reason. And uh, so this is a